Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. There, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. There's many places in Scripture where there's uh, kind of these uplifting stories. There's these stories that give us encouragement as we walk through life, but it seems uh, maybe just as often that there's places in God's Word that there's stories that are just humbling and hard and difficult and and difficult to even wrap our minds around. And uh, as as we had talked all the way through the Advent season leading up to Christmas, this, this is what the gospel is. This is what the good news is. It's a hurting in broken world, a world full of pain, but yet God breaks into it in a radical way, and God brings light to the darkness. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the moment that happened that all that darkness went away. Right? And, and you're probably aware of that in your own lives. That it's not like Jesus was born and then the world was perfect. That there's this time that we live in where, where we're living in what uh, biblical scholars call the already but not yet. It's this time where Christ has already come in, in Jesus, but yet he has not come the second time, right? He has not come and, and brought the fullness of this restoration, the fullness of this healing. And it is a perfect example when we get here in Luke chapter 2, what was just, ready, what was just read for you, that, uh, that this is a moment of already, but, but not yet. This is a moment where where Jesus has come into this world, but there's still so much pain, there's still so much hurt, uh, there's still so much going on here. So, um, I, th- I think it's a uh, important note that that as we go into this text, what we're doing here is is we have gone all the way through this Christmas season, and during this Christmas season, it's right we focus a lot on the birth of Jesus, and then what happens in most churches, and, and I don't think it's any fault of the church, but but you kind of get through that season and then you do something entirely different. Hopefully it's somewhere else in the Bible. But, but often it could just be, you know, any, any random thing. You go to one of Paul's letters or you go into, you know, stories in the Old Testament. But, but you miss that there's this section of the Bible that is, uh, Jesus is born, but his ministry has not started yet. All right, so, so he's already entered into the world, but he's not uh, an adult, he's not, he's not doing ministry, and there's kind of these, uh, what I kind of see is four main stories. So we're doing this mini four-week sermon series. This is the second week of it where we're going to dive into 
kind of these stories that are in between. So Jesus is either still an infant or later on he's uh, a child uh, during, during one of these stories. And uh, here we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Now the Gospel of Matthew uh, does not shy away from how brutal this world is. The Gospel of Matthew uh, doesn't shy away from the hurts and the pains that have accompanied many people in their lives' journeys, including God's people, including people that are seeking after him and following him. Uh, And here we are in Matthew 2, uh, starting in verse 13. Uh, And what's so important here is is that in Matthew's version of of the Christmas story, uh, Matthew focuses on the Magi, right? That they come from afar, that they travel and that they are there, uh, and that they bring gifts, uh, and that's normally where we kind of end the story, and, and that's appropriate, and that's kind of a Christmas sermon, uh, but this is the next story. This is the next thing that happens. The very next verse is, is kind of this wrath that is then poured out uh, on this place, Bethlehem. Now, one of the main uh, people featured here is uh, a ruler by the name of Herod the Great. Um, many church-going people are, are fairly familiar with him, but he ruled uh, an area of the, of the Roman Empire called Judea. Uh, it encompasses this larger geographic region that, that Jesus' uh, ministry is in. Um, it's, it's under the whole uh, power of the Roman Empire. So at this time, the Roman Empire is vast, uh, it's huge, and they, and they have different areas that, that are under their control. But it's hard to govern such a vast empire. And the reason that you would have an empire this big is so you could tax them really a lot. <laughs> right? So that, that, that's why people in Rome would set out and say, let's conquer this area, let's conquer that area, because they want to have these other people groups uh, that are under them, and then they can uh, have heavy taxes, and the Roman Empire rules with fear, and it rules with terror, uh, and it is just, it's just how they do it. it. It's a brutal, brutal world. You watch movies that take place during this time, and they have nothing on the historical accounts. If, if, you, if you read into the historical accounts of what is going on, it is, it is a brutal time. There is a reason why this is a time that is described over and over again as, as Jesus as light entering into the darkness. And it's almost kind of interesting because when we look back to many modern uh, people, we look back and we say, oh, it was kind of almost like an enlightened time. Like there was, uh, there was uh, culture that was happening, you know, kind of thing. And, and certainly that was there. But, but for the everyday people, especially the people living in this province in Judea, that was not their experience of the Roman Empire. It was, it was one of power. It was one of control. It was one of terror. And they have placed different regional rulers in place that help govern the everyday affairs. So Herod the Great is one of those rulers. Again, he rules over Judea. It's a Roman province. Um, The Roman Empire is huge. This is different than the Herod who is around when Jesus dies on the cross. That's actually his son. So so like many rulers, you know, you name your kid your same name, and uh, they have some respect through that. So Herod has a son, uh, and that is the one who's uh, in combination with Pilate in, in the trial of, of Jesus, right? So Herod the Great is older than that. Um, 
but he's, he's the one who's here, and he's known for his brutality. So we have uh, a lot, quite a bit said about him in the Gospels, but he is not a character that's just absent from other historical accounts. And you read Roman historical accounts, Herod is, is a person, Herod is uh, just as brutal, if not more, than he is in the Bible. Uh, Herod is, is all over uh, in their accounts, and we can actually gain a lot uh, through looking at, at the accounts and kind of learn. So I'm, I'm just going to kind of give you a brief overview of who this Herod is, and I think it is uh, enlightening as we look at the scripture. Uh, so how did he come into power? Well, first of all, 63 BC, uh, Pompey the Great conquered Jerusalem. He's a Roman general. Uh, he conquers Jerusalem, and he places it under the Roman Empire. Now, 13 years later, 40 BC, remember we're, we're BC, so we're going backwards in time. Um, they wouldn't have called it that, but we will. Uh, 40 BC, there's a guy named, and this name I struggle with, Antigonus, I believe is his name. He's, probably none of you are going to correct me. Uh, so, Antigonus uh, is, is a leader, 40 BC. He's a rival of Herod. Herod's already around. He's, he's on the scene. He's kind of a lesser uh, ruler at this time. And Antigonus takes the Judean throne uh, from his uncle with the help of a different empire. So instead of being backed by Rome, he's backed by the Parthians. Now the Parthians are this other empire. They're to the east of the Roman Empire. They, they're kind of like when the Persian Empire fell, the Parthians are the ones that... that uh, came up there, so they're centered in the Middle East, uh, modern day. Um, and the Parthians back uh, this guy, Antigonus, and Antigonus now takes over, and, he, and they kind of take this area away from Rome. Uh, again, 40 BC, and Herod, as well as many members of his family, they flee, and they actually go all the way to Rome. And they hide out in Rome, and the reason they're there is trying to get uh, the Roman support for let's, let's raise an army and let's go back and let's retake uh, Judea for Rome. Of course, Herod's like, with me as the ruler, <laughs> right? So, so he flees, he's able to escape, he gets all the way to Rome. He's there for, for actually years. Um, and then one day, unexpectedly, and it has to do a lot with Roman politics at the time, one day he is at the Roman Senate and the Senate vote on appointing him king of the Jews. That's what the title is. Sounds familiar from later on in the Gospels when Jesus uh, you know, gets placed above him at this, you know, the king of the Jews. So the, Roman, uh, the Romans vote on him. They make him king of the Jews. Now, he doesn't have much control because he doesn't under, or doesn't, Rome is not in control uh, of the, the area that he's supposedly a king of. But now that he's king... Herod is able to go back to Judea and win his kingdom. And he does it with this large army that is, that is given to him by Mark Antony, if you are a Roman uh, historian person. Uh, he gives him this large army. Uh, this is 37 BC. He marches back to Jerusalem uh, and he reconquers Jerusalem. And it's now under the Roman Empire again, but with King Herod the Great uh, as king. Um, his, his political rival is then captured and sent back to Rome for public ex execution. 
and Herod is now in control. But there's still another rival, another rival family that, that this other person could potentially take over. So the first thing Herod does, and this just kind of shows you who he is, is the first thing he does is a year later, he has this other uh, leader uh, assassinated. So he starts off his, his kingdom with brutality. Uh, it's just who he is. By the end of his life, when King Herod, and this is fast-forwarding a lot, but when King Herod is on his deathbed, he orders the assassination of his own sons because he's afraid that they're going to take over his throne. Now, keep in mind, he's on his deathbed, right? And, and one of the assassination plots actually goes through, and his oldest son is killed as he's on his deathbed. And it leaves the entire country in chaos uh, as it goes forward. This is Herod the Great. Herod the Great, the reason he's given the name Great, it's not because he was a good person. He's given the name Great because he does these great building projects. But what does he build? One of, one of the main things that gets it is as soon as uh, these Parthians are kicked out, he builds a series of fortresses on the eastern front of his territory in the direction where the Parthians came from. And there's, there's this whole series of forts, uh, some of which still exist today. Um, and Herod, Herod builds them. Herod also reconstructs the entire temple in Jerusalem and makes it far more grand than it was before. That's part of the reason he gets the name great, but it's not because he was a great person. It's not because he was nice to his subjects. It's not because he was well-loved. There's different ways to get the title, and it's a formal title that Rome bestows upon you uh, during this time. So when he does all these building projects, he's given the official title of King Herod the Great. Now, King Herod the Great um, is known even in these other sources for his brutality. And one thing that's not there is, is what happens in our text today in Bethlehem. Nowhere in the Roman sources does it talk about the, the sons of Bethlehem being killed. And that doesn't mean it that didn't happen. It means they were living in such a brutal world that they they didn't even record it because it was a small town. It was a small town in this backwards province, and it didn't even make it into the history books because this kind of stuff happened. This was the world they were living in. Rulers and people in power had this kind of authority. They had this kind of ability, and they could just uh, do their, their will in this way, and the historians of the day didn't even necessarily write it down, didn't even make the book. There's so much going on. And again, this is the world where light breaks into the darkness. right? This is the world that Jesus is born into. This is under, under the king that Jesus is born into the world and he enters uh, into this world. So as we look in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, it, it opens our eyes quite a bit. The Magi have come from the east. Many historians believe they came from the Parthian Empire itself. Right? So you're kind of connecting the dots a little bit. <laughs> the Magi come from the east. Magi sit in the courts of kings. They give wisdom to kings. That's what they are. That's uh, kind of their official title. So, so they come from there. They're very wealthy. Wealthy people did not travel alone in the ancient world. So they are traveling from the east. They're coming to Jerusalem. Uh, sorry to wreck your nativity set, but it's not just the three of them. Uh, there's not even necessarily three of them. There's just three gifts, so that's, that's what we have in the set. But um, 
they come from the east, they arrive in Jerusalem, there is, there is certainly a huge amount of people accompany them, servants, there, there would be many animals that would be there, there would actually be personal guards and soldiers that they employ to keep them safe as they're going, and, and really the small army shows up in Jerusalem, right to King Herod, and we're told that all of Jerusalem feared what was going on. Because the Parthians just showed up. They walked right past the fortresses. Right? They haven't come with a vast army. They haven't come to conquer. But, but they're here. And why are they here? And what do they want? And, and what do they say uh, as they get there? Let's, let's look. Matthew 2, 1 through 5. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now keep in mind who they're asking. <laughs> they asked King Herod, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem with him. So all of Jerusalem here means the, the leaders of Jerusalem. It's kind of like uh, in our modern world when, um, when the president says something, we might say the White House said, you know, this. So all of Jerusalem is also fearful. Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief, or, and all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea. Jumping ahead to verse 8. He said to them, or said to them, uh, and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I may go worship him. Verse 12. Uh, the Magi have gone there, and then it says this Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Brings us to today's text, verse 13. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So an angel appears to Joseph, just like earlier in Matthew, an angel appears to Joseph and tells him, don't be afraid to marry Mary. Uh, Joseph wakes up. Joseph does what the angel says. Once again, Joseph is sleeping. He has this connection, <laughs> I guess. And, and an angel appears to him again uh, in his dream, and, and it says, go to Egypt, like, like right now. Right? So Joseph gets up, and it says, during the night, they left. Um, the Magi were also warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So what does Joseph do? He, he immediately leaves. Verse 14, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod had realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity 
who are two years old or younger. In accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Truly tragic tragic and just brutal and and yet it fits Herod. It fits what we know about him. It fits what the Roman sources say about him. It fits it fits who he was. It seems par for the course. You know, besides these other accounts, it, it fits exactly where it is. And and I think there's a few more wrinkles to the story that, that I would like to highlight uh, that I think you'll find Uh, pretty enlightening. The first is this phrase. It's Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Um, It's it's quoted here from the prophet. So it's it's Hosea. It's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, Out of Egypt, I call my son. Uh, If we just think about Egypt a little bit in the Bible, I think we can learn a lot. Egypt is this big, powerful empire. Uh, They're very strong. They're on the Nile River. Um, They are often, in the biblical accounts, they're often oppressive, they're often violent. Uh, They act a lot like Herod is right now uh, in the Old Testament. Abraham goes to Egypt looking for food, and things go downhill very fast. Uh, Abraham decides to tell the Egyptians that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister in hopes that he will get favor from the Egyptians because he's afraid she's so beautiful, they're just going to kill me and, and take her. So he's like, but if I'm her brother, then they'll try to, like, give me stuff. So they give him a bunch of stuff. And God is not pleased. So God sends plagues on Egypt. This is the first time. God sends plagues on Egypt, and Pharaoh uh, sends Abraham and Sarah away with great wealth just to stop the plagues from happening. Now, we also know from the book of Exodus that later on God's people go back to Egypt, right? They become slaves in Egypt. Uh, What does Pharaoh do when he's afraid of the political power that this group of slaves who have have become many people has, right? He's afraid for his uh, his own political power, so he orders the killing of the sons. So here again, not only is... Uh, is Herod and, and the people of Jerusalem acting like Egypt. They're acting a lot like specific things. In the, and this, this is not lost to uh, Matthew writing us the gospel. He's drawing these connections for us to see. Um, they, they, kill the first, or they kill the sons of the Israelites. Moses escapes, right? His sister places him in a basket. He floats away. It's it's through that exact moment that actually the one who would free them is, is lifted up and becomes who he is, and it's, and it's Moses in this case. So when we come here, uh, there is some part of biblical plot building where, um, where this setting should kind of disturb us. They're running away to Egypt. That has never gone well. But yet the angel told him to do it this time. So what does that mean? And, and as you kind of chew on that, you begin to look 
deeper into that, what I actually find is, is what happens when God's people are acting like Egypt. Is that God orders his Savior to have to run away to the Egypt, right? There's this flip that's happening, and, and it makes us kind of chew on this more and sit in this more, and, and maybe, um, as one scholar I, I like to listen to always says, uh, it makes us want to take a long walk with a cup of tea and, and just think, what's going on here? What is God communicating? What am I not seeing? Something is happening. And where Matthew is, is partially going with this is, is, again, this phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, the entire nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, but, but who is leading them is Moses. And, and as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is clearly depicted as a new Moses, as a new Moses that has come to his people. Moses survived the order of the Egyptian pharaoh to kill all the sons. Again, because the Pharaoh was fearful for his own political power. And here in Matthew, it makes it very clear, painting Jesus in the same way. Moses is the one in the Old Testament that God spoke directly to. Moses is the one that that wrote down God's law that gives the Ten Commandments and the rest of the commandments to the people. Moses is the one that God is, is working through. And here Jesus all through the Gospel of Matthew, and it starts here very clearly, is depicted as a new Moses, a new Moses that has come to God's people. Later in the Gospel, he would take a simple loaf of bread and a cup of wine, and he will issue a new covenant in his own blood. So as we reflect on this text, there's so much going on here. And again, it's just kind of a shame that I think partially because of the brutality of it that we, we tend to breeze over it. We tend to breeze over certain biblical passages that are just, again, this is not one that I would normally pick and say, let me make a cup of tea and go for a long walk uh, with this Bible verse. All right, there's other one, the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let's walk it. Right, right, like the church is comfortable with that. Like, let's, let's go for a walk in this. But yet there's places in the Bible that, that it's deep and there's a lot going on. And, and we have to get through that, that hard outer shell, but it helps to kind of know that, that this, isn't spo- this isn't supposed to be an easy thing for us to read. This isn't supposed to be comfortable. This is, again, another perfect example of why this light in the darkness was so needed. And I just loved that last song that we sang before the, the sermon time because it's that piece. And, and I'm guessing Jimeline picked it because we talked about the sermon. <laughs> so, so sorry if it was new for you all to learn. <laughs> but I'm guessing because we were reflecting on what the sermon is that, that she was like, this is the song that they need to hear because in the in the hard parts of life, and we're not immune to it in our own lives, but in the hard parts of life, we still have this God that, that is powerful enough to bring peace into the chaos. Have you ever had those moments where it's, whether it's your health, the health of a loved one, a, another situation where it's just life is not going well, and you know, you're not surprised 
when you read things like this in the Bible because you're like, this is a hard world. This is a difficult world. And, and yet, again, we're in that already but not yet. In many ways, this is our world. And, and if this is not our world in this exact instance directly in us, it is for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. They live in the same brutal realities. And, and yet, we are called to be people of peace. We are called to be people of hope. We are called to lean on the one that is, that is even more powerful than this. That is even more powerful than King Herod. King Herod can do a lot. And, and in today's world, the, whoever the King Herods are, they can do a lot. They can, say, they can hurt people. But they can't hurt the church because of who Jesus Christ is. And it is through moments like this, all through history, that, that the church of Jesus Christ is able to stand up and be people of peace, to be people of hope, to be people that come alongside others and pick up the pieces and walk in a new day together. And, and again, there's, there's big situations where this happening, and then there's there's ones where maybe it's, maybe it's just you and God and no one else even knows about it. But it feels like this kind of chaos. It feels like this kind of darkness. So I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to pray that God uh, empowers each one of us to be ambassadors of this peace into a hurting and broken world, and that God empowers each one of us to come alongside uh, those who are hurting uh, and bring words of peace and that God would use us in that way.